0: Matthew 9, 14 to 26. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe. his garment for she said to herself if I only touch his garment I will be made well Jesus turned and seeing her he said take heart daughter your faith has made you well and instantly the woman was made well and when Jesus came to the rulers house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all of that district.
1: I want to begin today with the question, uh, what are the benefits of following Jesus Christ? I ask that in the sense of, and especially as we continue to endure this pandemic, following Jesus is meant to make a real, helpful, concrete difference in our lives. I echo the psalmist, the, the scripture that we read at the beginning of the service in Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To my friends who follow Christ already and have placed uh, their faith in him, I hope during this challenging time that you are longing for, you are hungering for a real experience of Jesus to make a difference in your heart, in your mind, in your circumstances as you face the challenges of the pandemic in whatever way you personally are. To my friends who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ yet, this is the invitation To look to Jesus as the one who can make sense of all our chaotic circumstances and and have a real benefit, not only for this life on this earth, but most importantly, for life after this life. To put it differently, I want to ask, do you feel tested during the pandemic? And if I'm transparent and honest with you, I I am certainly feeling tested. Just even this past week or so, when the education minister announced that uh, children will not be going back to school until May 31st at the earliest, I have to be honest, something sank in my heart. And I actually had to regroup myself. Okay, at least one more month of uh, trying to balance my work and all the relationships at home and homeschooling the children and on and on and and i actually have to regroup and gain perspective and so certainly for me that's just one way this pandemic uh, it continues to be a challenge and so for you how do you feel tested all of us are facing some kind of personal fallout because of this pandemic be it financial social mental uh, health-wise in whatever way And the point is, in these moments, that we should long for Christ to make a real, relevant, concrete difference. That there is benefit to following him in this life. And not only for this life, but most importantly for the life to come. So I hope that by the time we get to the end of the sermon, that there will be something stirring in your heart that you'll want to talk to God, pour out your heart to him with a prayer something like this. Lord, I want to experience all the benefits of following you. I want to experience all the benefits. I want you to be real in my life for this life and for the life to come. And so what I want to ask for the rest of the sermon is what are the benefits of following Jesus Christ? And today's scripture, I think it shows us at least four, at least four benefits of following Jesus So let's just dive right into it. The first benefit that I think Jesus wants his followers to experience is freedom from the joy killer of the Christ-following life. Freedom from something that just kills joy in life in general, but also for the Christ-followers specifically, there's something that will kill our joy in following Jesus. Let's pick up in the narrative. Verse 14 Matthew records, then the disciples of John came to him saying, and I want you to notice there that this isn't the first time Matthew uses this word, but he observes a group of people that he calls disciples. Now, maybe you have that word in your vocabulary or not, but I want to say that no matter whether you use that word or not, all of us, every single human being that has come on the face of this earth through all history, I've been a disciple of someone or something. Why can I say that? Because disciple simply means being a learner who follows the teacher. It's being a student or learner of some person or philosophy, and it can be any area of life. It can be finances. It can be relationships and romance, dating. It can be health. It can be academic. It it can really be anything. And all of us are disciples of someone or something. We are all following some way of life, some set of values, perhaps even some person. And so first, I want you to notice that. Now, the question is then, what or who are you a disciple of? And we see here, Matthew recording, that there were disciples or learners of John. This is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, Uh, and he has significant meaning in terms of the grand scope of the Bible. We won't get into that so much today, but there were these disciples of John the Baptist, and they came to Jesus, and they posed to him a a question. And they said, hey, look, Jesus, uh, we are John's disciples, and we are fasting. In fact, there's another school of disciples called the Pharisees. They're another group of disciples, and they also fast. now." what you need to understand is that the disciples of John and the Pharisees, one thing they did have in common is that they both really upheld God's law given through Moses. And if you're not familiar with what we call the Mosaic Law, it's basically God's stipulations, requirements, do's and don'ts. From ceremonial uh, requirements to uh, requirements for atoning for our sins to uh, just how to relate to one another in society. And basically the disciples of John and the Pharisees and most Israelites, they tried to live up to this law of God. Think of it as this long checklist, these check boxes, and they're trying their best to check off these laws and to feel good about themselves religiously, and hoping, hoping that God would accept them and love them and find favor with them and um, or over them and forgive them for their sins, and fasting. At least in one law was a specific requirement. On the Day of Atonement, God required his people to fast. But then just what's natural to our human hearts, these disciples of John and the Pharisees, they started making up their own extra laws about fasting. And so fasting became a very large part and significant part of their lifestyle. Now, this isn't just, um, you know, some sort of trendy fasting, but this was a very somber fasting where they were sad, they felt the pain of their body as they deprived themselves of food and sometimes water, and they let other people know that they were fasting. And the difference between the disciples of John and the Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples was that Jesus and his disciples apparently weren't fasting They were having a happy old time they were happy because they were eating and they were drinking and so they're asking how come you're not fasting now we could be tempted to just say okay albert that was a a fun religious history lesson but what does that have to do with me And I want you to realize, I want to argue and challenge you, that you actually, in 2020, as you are in a much more technologically advanced society, you are watching this service through this digital screen, through the wireless waves of the internet, that you actually still have very much in common with John's disciples and the Pharisees. How so, you ask? Well, I think, let me pose the question in this way What does all humanity throughout history have in common with the disciples of John, the Pharisees, and I'm gonna say sadly, even some people who call themselves Christians? I'd say almost 100% of every human being that has walked the face of this earth, there's something core to our hearts, the way we look out on the world, and there's something that ties us together. Even if you aren't religious, even if you consider yourself atheist, there's something that you have in common with the disciples of John and the Pharisees and even some people who call themselves Christians, even Muslims right now who are observing Ramadan and fasting. There's something in common to all of us. And if you boil it down, it's this. A self-worth based on personal performance. A self-worth based on personal performance. Every human being has that deeply just uh, coded into their hearts, programmed into their hearts and the way they approach the world. Bottom line, we live by a system that rewards us for our personal performance. I hope it doesn't take much to convince you of this. Just think back to your childhood as far as you can go. And when you started to feel that sense of, okay, mom and dad are only happy with me if I keep my room clean. Mom and dad are only happy with me if I do my chores. Mom and dad are only happy with me if I do well in school and get along with my brother. I, I only start to feel good about myself if I can have a boyfriend or girlfriend in high school or if I can be at that special dance and, and, and be part of the, the, just the status quo social experience. I can only feel good about myself if I can get into a certain school or, or accomplish this feat or get onto this sports team or get this job and make this amount of salary or get this new promotion and title. And, and we go on and on and on and on. And certainly religion is a big part of that too. I only feel good about myself if I can do enough religious things and feel religious enough. Now, if you think you're immune to that and that's not you, let me... Uh, I I admit, and I'm taking a little bit of a risk here, but I'm just going to ask a bit of a touchy question. And as we continue to face the pandemic, perhaps there are some of us who have been laid off and you're not earning a salary anymore. Have you been struggling at all with a sense of your self-worth because you've lost your job? Maybe you were really good at your job and all of a sudden you can't be doing those things that made you feel competent and needed Or perhaps as a parent at home, as you're trying to manage an extra busy household now and you're trying to teach your your children and you realize, oh my goodness, now I have a new appreciation for teachers because I realize I don't have the interpersonal skills and the patience and the know-how to teach my kids these things about academics and life and so forth. And maybe you are even beginning to feel uh, just a, a sense of your worth as a parent starting to shrivel a bit. And we could go on and on of just ways that this pandemic has been challenging our sense of self-worth. Perhaps you even see your, your portfolio or your savings starting to shrink and, and your actual worth, your worth because it's connected to your financial worth, your self-worth is starting to feel a bit smaller and smaller or feel a bit insecure. You see, all of us, deep down inside, we have a self-worth that's based On our personal performance and so this is the joy killer this is the joy killer of life in general but also the joy killer of following Jesus being a Christ follower trying to uh, live out a genuine Christian life in specific when we are resolute when we are resolved I'm gonna climb this ladder of personal performance oftentimes it's just human, natural human tendency that we become angrier people. We become more impatient. We become people that even use people and so forth. And there's something about basing your life on personal performance. And when you are striving for that, it begins to sap happiness out of it, even as you are convinced that attaining whatever performance will actually make you happy. It becomes a joy killer. And Jesus wants us to be aware of that. But the good news is Jesus also shows us the alternative. He shows us the joy. He wants his followers to experience the joy of the Christ following life. And so we ask, what is? What is the joy of the Christ following life? Now let me just give you a bit of an analogy or metaphor to try to help us understand what Jesus is about to say. And if you are married now or you're dating, I want you to think back to the days when you weren't married or you were interested in dating. Or if you're single right now and you're looking forward to dating or getting married someday, uh, just in your current state, I want to ask you this. Are you in love with the idea or the institution of love? Have you ever heard that expression that some people are just in love with love? They want to get into a relationship or get married because they just want to be a part of that romantic story and to have that romantic story for themselves. Or perhaps uh, you see it as the institution of love and you want to be regarded as someone socially accepted, that you're normal like everyone else and you're establishing yourself in a way that you think that society deems normal. And so you're in love with the institution of love. Now, we all know that what's healthy and what should be is that if we fall in love, it should be that we are falling in love with that person for who they are and loving that person and feeling in love with that person Now, Jesus, he says something similar here as he continues. Now, Jesus, in his sagely manner, uh, he was certainly a wise teacher, and oftentimes he taught in very sage-like ways. And and out of left field, he throws this metaphor, uh, an analogy or metaphor, at the disciples of John. And he said to them in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And Jesus, in his masterful way, he is um, identifying the disciples of John and the Pharisees as those who are mourning. The way they fasted was just this somber, ascetic, and just beating themselves up, kind of fasting. And so they're the mourners in this little uh, parable that Jesus is telling. And he paints this wonderful, exciting picture of this wedding feast, and everyone is celebrating, uh, dancing, and enjoying themselves, and, and drinking, And uh, the the star of that moment is the bridegroom. Everyone is happy because of this joyous occasion that uh, this bridegroom has um, gotten married to his beloved bride. And they're celebrating the people here. They're celebrating this couple and the bridegroom in Jesus' parable specifically. And the joy of this occasion is not even the wedding itself, it's not all the great food, it's not the fact that they have an occasion to uh, put on new wedding garments and wedding suits and dresses, it's not the occasion or the institution itself, it's the person at the center of the wedding. And Jesus says here in his parable, it's the bridegroom. Now let me try to connect this to uh, at least Torontonians that are uh, winning and uh, or that are listening. Sorry, and And what a difference a year makes. If you think back to this time last year, Toronto was in hot pursuit of its first ever NBA championship. And at the center of that pursuit was uh, Kawhi Leonard. He was like the Messiah of the Toronto Raptors. He was like the the savior, and like I say this just tongue-in-cheek, like the Jesus of the Toronto Raptors. And we know, long story short, he delivered And Toronto, and not only Toronto, but the whole nation of Canada uh, experienced a a celebration like none ever before. And people were so happy, but then we know how that quickly turned that story. And we know that he left. He left for another city. And a whole nation was saddened. Even my own boy was so saddened that he began began to write a letter to Kawhi Leonard. Uh, expressing his uh, just disappointment and asking, why did you leave? And what I want you to see is the power of one person to be able to bring a joy to a whole people, a whole nation, and also the absence of one person that can bring a lot of sadness to a whole nation. Now, Jesus says something similar. He wants to convey a similar point as we pick up in verse 15 here, and he's trying to add texture to uh, his point in the parable. And he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, we know that in this parable, Jesus is representing himself by the bridegroom. And so Jesus here is speaking to a day when he will be taken away And there will be a time for his followers to legitimately fast. Not in the same way as the disciples of John and the Pharisees were doing. Um, But there will be a day. And we know that he was taken away when he was crucified on the cross. And we know after he rose again, he was taken away uh, in that he ascended back to heaven. And we are waiting now. We're in a season now. In 2020, we are waiting for Christ to return someday And it's during this time that Christ followers have a legitimate reason to fast. Here, let me just share with you a, a thought here, and I hope this helps to just summarize the whole point here. And so let me read. As Christ followers pine for Christ's final and eternal kingdom to come, fasting is a healthy practice. It is good for our pining souls to fast earthly things that tempt us to believe this present earth is our final and only home. It is good for our pining souls to feast by faith on Christ in our hearts, to bolster our hope in him and his new earth. See, Jesus' undeniable point here is that he, the main point is this, we can't um, miss this. He is the joy of the Christ follower. The point of the parable is that the joy is connected to the bridegroom. When the bridegroom is there, and so when Jesus was here on earth in history for those 30 somewhat odd years, that was a precious time in history. And what a time! What if you could walk with Jesus and see him physically? And even though as Christ followers we have his spirit indwelling us and there is real reason for joy. And yet there is this real sense of pining, longing to be reunited physically with Christ again someday. Jesus' point is that he himself, relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, is our great joy. Let me pause here and just ask a self-reflecting question uh, first, to my Christian friends, is your Christianity just an institution? Is your Christianity just a set of rules that you're trying to obey and follow? Is your Christianity just activism and trying to do good, but at the end of the day, your Christianity is missing that vibrant personal love relationship and prayer conversation and meditation on God's word and in, in scripture? Are you, is your Christianity that personal connection with Christ? So I appreciate what jo- John Piper says. The more I ponder the source and ground of all our lasting joy, the more convinced I become it's the beauty of God. In all his gifts, we are to see him, especially in the gospel of grace, we are to see him. In all our seeing of the natural world, we are to let our eyes run up the beam of beauty to the original, to the treasure of Christ who is the image of the beauty of God. Now part and parcel with this joy of Christ following, the joy who is Jesus, part and parcel with that is a certain newness that comes with the Christ following life. Now remember, the context of Jesus' parable here is a wedding feast. And then Jesus goes on to give two quick analogies, and I think we're supposed to understand this in the context of a wedding feast. And Jesus gives two quick analogies, one of wedding garments, and second, wedding new wine. Okay, just new wine at a wedding. In verse 16, Jesus explains, look, you want to go to a wedding, you're invited And you pull out your old wedding suit, your old wedding dress, and you notice that there's a little tear in it. Now you want to go in your wedding best, so you grab a new little piece of cloth to try to mend that tear in your old wedding garment. But Jesus explains, and it happens all the time, when you have a new set of clothing and you first wash it and dry it, have you noticed that your clothes shrink? Same deal. Jesus is explaining that if you put that little piece of new cloth on an old garment, as that new cloth shrinks, it'll actually cause the old garment, the tear, to become worse. And then Jesus gives another analogy. Imagine you have this old wineskin that's been stretched out. The way they fermented wine was to have these leather wineskins, and it started off as a new piece of hide. And when they put wine in it and it began to ferment, then the wineskin would actually expand From all the fermentation and new life that was brewing in that new wine, in that new wineskin. But now Jesus is saying, now you take that old wineskin that has been stretched to the max, and if you put a new wine in there and it begins fermenting, then it'll eventually burst because that old wineskin has already been stretched to the max. It's done what it can, and then it'll eventually actually burst and everything will be ruined. The new wine will be wasted, and even the old wines can't be used to store anything else any longer. Jesus has two big points in wanting us to think about new things. First, Jesus wants to provide something so new to his followers, something so fresh Something that is so just uh, refreshingly different and new. And second, Jesus is saying that the old and the new can't mix. The old for Jesus, as he's addressing the disciples of John and the Pharisees is trying to live up to God's standards and to obtain your own salvation by your own moral performance, trying to secure your own self-worth by your own personal performance. That is the old way. And Jesus wants to provide something refreshingly new. Now, what is that? And it's part and parcel now with what happens next. Jesus also wants his followers to experience the benefit of healing. He wants his followers to experience a healing that comes as part of the Christ-following life. As we pick up in verse 18, note Matthew writes, While he was saying these things, and so Matthew wants us to read the first part of what we just read, Jesus uh, having a conversation with the disciples of John and Jesus bringing up this wedding feast parable and these new things, the new garment and the new wine. And Matthew wants us to understand what's about to happen along with what has just happened. And so while he was saying these things, and here's Matthew's literary highlighter, he says, Behold, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before Jesus, saying, My daughter has just died. My daughter has just died. And he's looking to Jesus, believing, having faith that Jesus can raise her from the dead. Now, what does Matthew want us to notice in no uncertain terms? First, I want you to be so encouraged. This person is a ruler. Remember we were talking about climbing up ladders to try to feel good about ourselves? This ruler is someone who's climbed really high up that ladder in society. He's made it. He has servants under him. He has wealth. He's a ruler in society. He has climbed up that ladder. And yet what is so challenging and simultaneously reassuring and comforting is that this ruler knows that he needs Jesus. No matter how high he's climbed up that ladder, there's still someone higher than him, someone more powerful than him, someone who can defeat death, where all his wealth and resources, his authority in society as a ruler cannot save his daughter's life. And so he comes and looks to Jesus. Andrew Cuomo, uh, the governor of New York, New York State, Uh, in New York, is one of the hardest hit places by the pandemic. And he is quoted saying this, that COVID-19 is the great equalizer of humanity, capable of sickening anyone, 20-somethings and senior citizens, ordinary people, or famous actors. And I appreciate uh, Governor Cuomo's reflection here. And Jesus is pointing to something similar. The, the, the ruler here understood what Governor Cuomo was saying, that there are things in life that even though he's a ruler in society, even though he's wealthy, even though he's smart and has whatever number of degrees behind his name, he is not immune to certain things in life. He is not immune to death. He is not immune to needing someone more powerful beyond himself. And Matthew also records someone else in a similar situation. Even as Jesus was dealing with this ruler, Matthew again, behold, he wants us to pay attention that a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years had come up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. Do you see a a theme and a pattern building up here? Garment again. Jesus' garment is in the picture And Matthew wants us to notice that first, there was a woman. Sadly, at the time, this was a patriarchal society, and so as a woman, she was already already starting in life with a handicap. But on top of that, to add insult to injury, here's a woman who had a physical condition. She had a constant discharge of blood, which we understand to be just Matthew's way of speaking of just a a constant uh, menstruation. And this, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking, ceremonially speaking, societally speaking, would have marginalized her. According to God's law, she was unclean for 12 years, nonstop. But also imagine how weak she felt physically and psychologically how battered she must have felt because she was so marginalized. And so here is someone who is very low on the rung, low on the ladder. The ruler is someone high up on the ladder. This woman is someone low on the ladder. And Matthew is showing that both these people need Jesus. They need Jesus. Where are you on the ladder, this world's ladder? And as you're trying to climb, where are you? And I hope that you feel and recognize and believe and see and think that you need Jesus no matter where you're at in life. And so look how Jesus beautifully heals her. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart. Jesus didn't fear becoming unclean. Instead, he says, with authority, because he is the source of joy, he is the source of being becoming clean, he says, take heart, have faith, And look how he addresses her, daughter. In that one word alone, he is healing her socially, spiritually, psychologically, to say you are a beloved daughter and creation of God, and I'm about to restore you. Your faith has made you well, and I want you to notice the order. This is Jesus' pattern. We saw it in last week's passage, that Jesus first heals the soul, and then we see that next he heals her body This is beautiful. And so first I want to say clearly, if I could look into all your eyes, especially those who are struggling with some kind of physical ailment, I am willing to bank my life on this next statement. And this is it. Whether now, temporarily, or at the dawn of the new world, permanently and completely, Christ will heal your body and soul. If you're suffering physically today, mentally today, I want you, I want to say confidently and reassuringly, whether it's now temporarily, because if God so chooses to heal you, you gotta remember it's temporary. Even all those that Jesus healed during while he was here on earth, they eventually died again. They eventually succumbed to the greatest sickness and disease of all, which is death. So even if you're healed here on earth, it'll be temporary. But the great hope is that even if you're not healed here on earth, one day at the dawn of the new world, you will be permanently and completely healed in body and soul. Jesus will preeminently heal our relationship with God. He'll heal our relationship with ourselves and being at peace with ourselves because we're at peace with God. And he'll heal all our relationships with others, even as we find ourselves in perfect bodies. Now, how do we experience this? How do we experience this benefit? It's in verse 21. We would do well to be disciples of this woman. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment... She understood faith in that moment. She knew that she had to have Jesus' garment on her in some shape and form. How do you not experience this newness? How do we experience the joy of following Christ? How do we experience the healing that comes with that joy and that newness? We need a touch from outside ourselves. The ruler, the, this powerful man, whom we can assume was rich as well, he knew he needed a touch from outside of himself, a power outside of himself. This woman knew that she needed the touch of Jesus Christ's garment outside of herself. And that's what we call grace. The newness that Jesus ultimately is pointing to in his analogy, his little parable of, of the new garment and the new wine, is his new grace, his new and final covenant of grace. See, Christ's grace is so new because it, it, it is, when, if you truly understand God's grace, it is radically, entirely countercultural to our performance-driven world. So I love what Isaiah the prophet says looking forward to Jesus and his garments of righteousness. He said many hundreds of years before Jesus, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. This could have been the song of that woman. Who touched Jesus' garment? He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so, as we think back to Jesus' analogies of this wedding, people with wedding garments and, and this new wine. What I hope you will see today, what I hope you will see of Jesus and that he becomes that much more beautiful to you. I hope that you'll see him hanging on the cross as your substitute and he was stripped of his garments and took on the nakedness of your sin, my sin, your shame, my shame, so that we could be clothed with his garments of righteousness. You see, Jesus, he drank the old wine of God's wrath as he hung on the cross as our substitute. He drank the old wine of God's wrath, of God's law, so that you and I could drink the new wine of God's grace. And so I hope you'll pray with me. Lord, I want to experience all the benefits of following you.